Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We continue on with our sermon uh, series, and we're in The Way. And I think I want to start not by telling you about what we're going to be talking about, but by talking about what I'm going to tell you about. Being a man in a delivery room, like a, a, you know, the delivery room where babies are happening, being a man in a delivery room is a really interesting experience. Uh, Some of you have experienced this, others of you, it's just not possible, I'm sorry, but you're entirely helpless, you're mostly worthless, and what you have become is really a helpless observer, and everybody is patronizing just a little bit to kind of like keep you involved and invested. So the nurse is like, oh, well, we got the readout says we're at 46, and you're like, oh, 46 is good, good job. And, you know, they're, they're kind of like helping you into the conversation, but they know and you know. You both, you have this understanding, you can kind of wait like, I'm, I'm worthless. I have nothing to do here. I'm pretending to help you breathe. I'm like, rubbing her hair. My wife is, you know, sweating and there's 13 hours of labor and you're, you're like, I, what am I here for? I'm, I'm moral support, which means in the practical sense, I'm worthless. We have some, uh, some friends. My wife has been in the delivery room with several friends and we have friends that were eating, like the man was eating just Chick-fil-A in the corner while his wife is in labor, <laughs> like chewing on waffle fries. And that's like, that's not a good look. You don't want to do that. <laughs> Honey, you would love these. These are so good and salty. And <sighs> she's like, savoring an ice chip on her way to 23rd hour of labor. Guys, we know that have uh, the TV up in the delivery room. They change it to sports, and they just sort of zone out. They're like, oh, sweet golf tournament. And you're like, no, no, there's a thing happening. Woman does all the work. There are medical professionals that are in charge. And then the man just quietly affirms whatever everybody else says. We don't know. We have no idea. Something is effacing, and something is dilating, and something is crowning. And I have no clue. I'm like, whatever. You could tell me anything about any of those words, what they mean, and I would have just been like, yeah, that sounds good. We should be doing that now, shouldn't we? Doc, you know, and I'm calling people in. I have no clue. So, so this is my experience with my firstborn. Uh, so Bella is, is um, she's arriving. I don't know a better way to say that without it getting kind of weird in here. Um, and the doctor, my wife's OBGYN, um, she was the uh, mother of one of my best friends from high school. So I'd spent countless hours in her home and, and hanging out with her, and I knew her really well. And so this great familiar face comes in, and she's just got everything under control. And, you know, the first-time parent, you're just, this is all chaos and what is happening. And, and it's like you got dropped into Six Flags or Cedar Point or something, and it's just there's noises and smells and things are everywhere, and you don't know what's happening. She comes in, and I'm like, okay, it's all going to be okay. The medical professional is here. So she walks in, and she does her thing. Everybody's scrubbing into things, like gloves and hats and all their medical things. And, and there's tools that I don't know. I don't know. Just use your imagination. These are things happening. And at some point, after some of those strange words get used, and there's like the baby's coming. The baby is almost here. We're, we're getting there. She looks at me, and I'm, you know, haven't slept in two days, and my hair, like, very homeless at this point. And she looks at me, and she goes, all right, Dad, you ready? And I'm like, yeah. affirm whatever they say. Affirm. You know, I'm just good. Yeah. Yes, I'm totally, what, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm ready. And she goes, all right, come on in. What now? And she goes, yeah, come on in. You're going to catch. 
Are we going to have like a meeting about that? I got some questions. You have gloves. I, I don't have gloves. I was in the hall eating Cheetos like three hours ago. Are you sure this is, like, you know, I'm just going through all the scenarios. Like, is, it's gonna, is this something slippery? Is, am I going to fumble? Is that a problem? I'm looking around. You know, there's all these instruments everywhere. I'm looking for that, the fishing net. You know, like the one where you boat a marlin, the big net on it. I'm like, do you have one of those? Because that seems safer than, I've not, I feel like we're paying you to do this. <laughs> And she's like, nope, you're going to catch. So she brings me in, and I'm staring at everything. And then the, she says, when you see armpits, and then she makes, you know, like a forklift has those. She goes, when you see arm, armpits, you just want it like a forklift. Just go in and grab. And I was like, all right, I can do this. I did not ask my wife if I could tell this story. Um, <laughs> and so I'm waiting, and I'm like, well, you just tell me when. And she, she's kind of waiting, and then there's pushing, and things are happening, and then and she goes, okay, catch. And I reach in, and I use my forklift arms, and I pull out, and I didn't drop her, and I was like, I don't know, what, what's next? And they took her, you know, they're really gracious about it. And it was this kind of magical moment. And in the moment, it was kind of like, listen, there's a lot of liability that just changed place here. This could have been bad. But then you think about that moment in hindsight. And what a magical thing she allowed me to do. See, what, what the doctor did, what she was doing in that moment was taking me from being an observer in the room to becoming a participant in the life. She was moving me from a place of simple affirmation, mm-hmm, that sounds good, to a place of radical activation where I was now part of what was happening in the room. And it changed my entire experience. And that is what today's story is all about. Luke chapter 16. Jesus says, there was once a rich man, expensively dressed in the latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumption. And a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, had been dumped on his doorstep. All he lived for was to get a meal from scraps off the rich man's table. His best friends were dogs who came and licked his sores. And then he died, this poor man, and was taken up by angels to the lap of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell and in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus in his lap. He called out, Father Abraham, mercy, have mercy. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you got the good things and Lazarus the bad things. It's not like that here. Here, he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides, in all these matters, there's a huge chasm set between us so that no one can go from us to you, even if he wanted to, nor can anyone cross over from you to us. And the rich man said, then let me ask you, Father, send him to the house of my father where I have five brothers so he can tell them the score. He can warn them so they don't end up here in this place of torment. And Abraham answered, they have Moses and the prophets to tell them the score. Let them listen to them. I know, Father Abraham, the rich man replied, but they're not listening. If someone came back to them from the dead, that would change their ways. And Abraham replied, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. Now, I said this was something about the birthing process or something like that. And you hear that story, and my hunch is you go, this seems like it's sort of about the afterlife, though. So maybe not the beginning. Maybe it's about the end. You would think that. I thought that. But I don't think that anymore. The story starts in, in a construction that's really familiar in this, this kind of 
um, series that we're in. The prodigal son, the shrewd manager, and this story, they, they all start with this construction that in the original language basically means a certain man. Jesus, Jesus kind of sets apart this, this story and says, there was a certain man who, there was a certain man who, and so as he's telling these stories, he starts it in much the same way. And like those stories, this one remains unfinished. So like the older brother in the prodigal story, we don't know what happened. Like the shrewd manager, we're not totally sure how it all worked out. Here we have the same thing. We don't know what happened to the five brothers. Jesus gets attention by telling a story, and, and I think it's interesting to note, this is not an original story. Like, this is not a Jesus uh, original. There's great evidence that this is an Egyptian folktale that was commonly told in Palestine. But what Jesus has done is he's taken this folktale about this god, Cyrus, and there's a rich man and a poor man in the afterlife, and he's kind of mediating between them. Jesus takes the story that's familiar to the hearer, he customizes it, and then updates it. And in doing so, Jesus takes it from what was really a folktale about the afterlife, and Jesus rips it out and brings it into the present. He hijacks something familiar and changes its meaning ever so slightly. Jesus, my friends, is like a pirate, okay? Jesus is hijacking the story. He is a story pirate, one patch, the triangular hat, whatever you have to imagine. He's taking a story, and he's just hijacking it like a pirate, and he's changing it and then retelling it. So first, he's appealing to people who are going to know this story on some kind of basic level. Oh, I know where this is going. And then there's always the plot twist with Jesus, isn't there? This story is no longer about the afterlife. It's about moving from observation to practice. What we think is a story about Lazarus, and then what we think is a story about this rich man, turns into a story about these five brothers. Because he's speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to those who, who should know the score, to use the language of Eugene Peterson. Some people stop at this point and they go, wait, but is this the Lazarus? Because that changes things. If this is Lazarus who he rose from the dead, this is a different story altogether, isn't it? So the answer to that is we don't know. We cannot be sure if this is the Lazarus that Jesus rose from the dead or it's just a Lazarus. What's interesting is that it does say something about if you can't be convinced by someone being raised from the dead and Lazarus is involved. And so maybe, maybe, let's, let's assume for a minute that it is. It, it, it's kind of not important to the end of the story, but assume that it is the Lazarus, that, that Jesus is making a, a connection between Lazarus who has been risen from the dead and this idea that this isn't going to change their hearts anyway. Go back to the story of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus has raised him from the dead, and here's what it said. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. Many did. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So the response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was that the people in charge decided this is a really good guy to get rid of. And so as Jesus is telling this story about this rich man and this beggar, when he says, I don't think it's going to really matter, Pharisees, if someone comes back from the dead, it's not really going to change you. That's not what you need. If, 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 this, if the law and the prophets don't work, that's not helping you either. He has good evidence to say it because he's done it, and the response was, we should kill him. They witnessed the resurrection and decided to kill the miracle maker. Jesus was resurrected then as the story goes. And while many believed, most didn't. And those who did believe, we're told, were hunted down, crucified upside down, persecuted, and imprisoned. So Jesus makes this point. 
That if resurrection doesn't bring repentance, if it doesn't turn somebody from their wicked ways into something good, if resurrection doesn't bring repentance, what will? Because that's what this story is ultimately about. It's not about the afterlife, it's about the present life, and it's about repentance. It's about those five brothers who now have the opportunity to turn and avoid the fate of their other brother. It's too late for me, says the rich man, but maybe there's a chance for my brothers. The brother who's ended up in torment knows that his other brothers need to change their ways. They need to revise their life. Repentance is a, it's a revision. It's a turning. I was doing this, and now I will do that. I was going east, and now I'm going west. So this is a story about those brothers and what will happen to them. What will they do? And we don't know. We don't know how it ends, but we do know what it will require. And it's the same thing that it requires for you and I. It's, it's what Jesus has been showing the rich men through this story, it requires us to move from observation to participation, to, to take Jesus off of this place where we observe him or even affirm his, his godliness and put him into a place of participation and activation because there's a real difference, isn't there? To follow Jesus is more than to just be near and observe him because the Pharisees that he's telling the story to were near and observing and maybe even affirming but there's a very big difference from coaching through Lama's breathing and whispering, you got this every so often. You can do it. To being invited to catch. It's different to affirm someone's teaching than to practice a way of living. Anybody can read a diet book, applying it is hard. Anybody can take good investment advice, putting your money behind it takes some courage. But Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to do is to get off the shelf, in a sense, and get into the action. To go from affirmation to activation. Jesus doesn't need your affirmation. He desires your activation. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He doesn't need your affirmation. He's not looking for you to be like, yeah, no, I think what you're doing is good, buddy. It doesn't, it doesn't build him. It doesn't glorify him. It doesn't grow him. He doesn't need it. What he desires, the reason he was here, is to activate us in his way of living. Jesus in Luke 5, at the beginning of his ministry, said he was here to call the sinners to repentance. But notice he doesn't just walk around the world shouting, repent. He's not the crazy person on the street corner standing on the milk carton with the big sign and the cowbell just shouting, repent. He could have. He decided that wasn't going to work. He's so much more beautiful and brilliant than that. Yes, Jesus wants you to repent. Yes, Jesus wants you to revise your life to turn now, but he's also inviting people to join something, to join a way of living. So it goes from turning now into following for the rest of your days. It, there's a, a, an immediacy and a process involved. There's an immediacy, turn now, and there's a process of then becoming what you turn to become. You go from, I was going east and now I'm going west, and then Jesus goes, and you're going to kind of edge north at times, and I'm going to push you back west. So he's saying, turn and follow. Walk with me. But he doesn't tell us to do that by shouting. Jesus, it seems, knows that there is a story unfolding in our midst. That your life is a story being written. He's got it plotted out. The beauty of Jesus is he knows where the story goes. He, he knows where the plot line is going to go. And yet you and I sometimes lose the plot. 
And so he re-engages us to help us see how good of a story it is when he is central. He invites us into the story. He appeals to the heart first and then invites us into that story, that process of becoming who we were made to be, the process of fulfilling the whole reason we were here in the first place. Jesus tells story after story after story because he wants us to get into his story. He wants to move us from passive listeners to active participants. There's a story followed by a story followed by a story because standing on the street corner and yelling repent isn't going to work. So Jesus just keeps appealing to the imagination. He keeps appealing to the personhood. And he goes, if you would find yourself in this story. And Jesus knows that in that story, there's a greater story unfolding and it's his story in us. So the question becomes, what does that mean for you today? Like, what can that even teach us? Eugene Peterson says it this way, and I think this is a great way to sum up this whole story. Eternity is not what begins when we die. Eternity is woven into every word and action of our daily lives. The rich man realized this too late, that every time he passed Lazarus and paid him no mind, Eugene Peterson would say he was building hell. And that took me a minute. I had to read that sentence a few times. That every time the rich man passed Lazarus by, he was building his hell. What do you mean by that? He was participating, the rich man, was participating in his desired eternity every day. If eternity is now, not something off later, if eternity is now, then you and I are experiencing eternity, and we are participating in the eternity we are longing for. And so if the rich man lives his life in conspicuous consumption and ignores the poor man sitting at his front door, what Peterson would argue is that he was constructing his desired eternity. He was living out the life he wanted. And so only fitting for God to then, at the end of his natural life, to go, I'm giving you the life that you chose. I'm giving you the life that you wanted. And it is the life separated from me and all things eternal. Your life on a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Saturday night, your life reflects your desired eternity. And the rich man in the story is sure his brothers don't know this. They don't see it. And so he appeals to send Lazarus back to warn them. They don't know that eternity is woven into every moment. They don't know that they're, they're kind of making their choice now. But I think it's such a beautiful bit of grace, right? God is so gracious. He allows us to choose our eternity in that sense. Like heaven is waiting for each of us to join into the movement. Heaven is waiting for us to join into the way. Heaven is waiting for us to, to turn over and make Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday night all the same as Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11. Heaven is waiting for us to join in the way, in the movement of mercy and love. Heaven is here now, and so is hell. And hell is simply the place that God is not. People go, well, what about the tormenting? What about the, he says he's hot, he's sweaty, he's, it's fire. You ever get, you get really nervous? I'm not telling you what hell is like. I don't know, I've not been. When you get really nervous, you know when you get flustered, you start getting hot? You ever realize something too late, like when you were in school 
you're walking to class and you realize as you're walking to class that you had a huge test and you didn't study, and then immediately your body just kicks in. And I kind of see the, the rich man having that on a like cosmic level, where he's having this like, wait a minute, are you saying that the whole thing was a, what? And it all just sorts of fall apart on him. And now he's got to deal with that. So he's having this slow motion realization that this is what he had chosen the whole way around. And so Jesus is pointing the listener to, the Pharisee to, you and I to, Jesus is pointing to repentance, and repentance points to a resurrection. So it's a repentance moral with a resurrection story. The reason he's included this resurrection story is because there's a resurrection that needs to take place, and that's what the rich man is asking for. He thinks he's asking to send Lazarus back, send, resurrect him and send him back, and that'll change everything. And what he really is asking for is that his brothers would be resurrected from death to life. His brothers would be taken from the path of death and put on a different path, and that would be one to life. So this is a resurrection story, then, that is an invitation to the listener, to you and me and the Pharisees, to turn from our lives that lead to death and accept the life that has been resurrected from that fate a life that has meaning and purpose and hope, that's the life that Jesus came to give us, and yet every single day we have the choice to live the resurrected life or something less. To follow Jesus is not to affirm his life, but to come alive in his resurrection. If you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, you cannot simply affirm his life. You have to come alive in his resurrection. That's what he's aiming for. That's what he's longing for. That's what he came to die be resurrected for, is to invite you into a whole new way of living. You were designed for something greater than the pursuit of happiness. You were created for holiness, to be set apart, to be made. You've been made holy. He calls you holy. He's setting you apart. He's calling you his own. He's bringing you in. He's, you're part of the family. He wants you in on the resurrected life. He wants you in on the life that nothing else compares to. So if you ever look at your life and feel like it isn't what you thought it would be, if you ever look at your faith and wonder why it hasn't opened up the transcendence that you were promised or it, the shine kind of came off and it isn't what it used to be, it isn't that your faith has failed you. More likely, you've slipped into the affirmation trap or the observation loop that are really appealing places to sit that we find ourselves observing faith instead of participating. We find ourselves affirming Christ instead of living him out. And if you find yourself slipping into those places, it's pretty comfortable there. It's less risky. On the outside, it still looks like you're a pretty decent human being. And yet there's something in us that knows this is not what I was created for. I would argue that you are actively in the delivery room here now. That life, that modern life is the delivery room. And you and I are in it. And think about this. When you walk out of these doors, there is life happening. I'm not talking about the ambulance driving down the street. I'm not talking about the baby being born just down the street of the hospital. I'm saying there is life happening. There are lost people being found. There are dead bones being brought back to life. The flowers bloom. We miss it. We just walk by it. That there's the story being told of the death of winter being brought into the life of spring. And then as if we missed it, we didn't appreciate it enough, God sends snow, and we get to go, oh, wait a minute, all of my spring is gone. And he goes, gotcha, it's melting, don't worry. 
everything we see is this invitation to this story. It's an invitation into the delivery room of life where God is inviting you in day after day after day. Are you going to be an observer affirming what you see? Uh-huh, I think I do it that way too. Good job. Keep it up, guys. Or are you going to get active in it? There is no more wild and awesome place to be than a human being on God's earth. We, we just miss it. We need to go on vacation to have adventure. You walk out those doors and this is an adventure. And there are soul-determining things happening everywhere. If you have the eyes to see that your neighbors are having eternal questions in their hearts, that your friends are having eternal moments, experiences, that you in the silence of the night, or in the struggles with a sin, that you are walking through eternal doorways. There is no more wild place to be. Heaven is present in every moment around us. Miracles are happening in front of us. Life is appearing from non-life, and yet you and I are so often lulled to sleep. We let the professionals handle it. There are people who do that. And the point of this story is the rich man with his conspicuous consumption finds himself on the wrong side of eternity. The point of the story is that that's a lie, that you were not created to let the professionals handle it, that you were not created to sit back and observe, that you were not created for conspicuous consumption, but to address the, the leper sitting at the front door. That's what you were created for. That's where life is. God didn't design you to passively watch life go by, but to engage and be knee deep in the wild unknown, in the mess of creation. It's, you're in the delivery room. There's beeping and there's noises and there's people coming in and out and stuff's rushing all around and you don't even think you know where you are at times. And yet if you zero in and you focus on the great physician, if you focus on the one who's invited you in, there's a role for you in that room. There's a role for you on this earth. There's a role for you with your neighbors. There's a role for you with the people that God has given you influence with. And he is inviting you into that participation. But you have to see it. Life is being born all around you. Lost souls are being found. Earth is heaven's delivery room. Think about it. Earth is heaven's delivery room. And you have a choice. You can affirm and never activate. You can observe and not participate. Or you can jump in and start catching. You can get those forklift hands ready and go, God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm ready. And he's going to say it. You're willing, he's going to say, catch. Here's one. Catch. There's another. Catch. That neighbor you thought was too far gone, catch. Your uncle, oh yeah, that uncle, catch. He has a role for you to play in catching the life that he is birthing all around us. So you can start living and weaving eternity into your days because your life lived today is the preview of you, your desired eternity. You can start catching. You can start living. You can start participating because this is the, des the desired eternity for you. And if that is one with God, on mission, activated, living that transcendent life where something greater is happening at all times, if that's the life you want, Jesus says, it's yours. There's no, like, special thing you have to do. There's no, like, hoop you need to jump through. 
I'm offering it to you. You just have to take it. And so you can experience the passive existence or you can gloriously stumble through the mess of creation. What we need to know and understand is that life is here. This is the only one you get. And life is being born all around you. Jesus has invited you to do one simple thing, whether you feel trained or equipped, whether you feel ready. Jesus is seeing you observing and affirming, and he's invited you to participate, to activate. Catch. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would find us today in our modes of observation in our passive sitting beside the real action of life, and I pray that you would move each and every one of us one step closer to your living, to your life, to your resurrected day-to-day existence. And I pray that as we walk into the wilds of this giant delivery room you find us in, Father, you would give us the courage to risk what we have to find life in you. You would remind us that even though it feels dangerous at times to leave the, the shadow of safety, that, Father, the safest place to be is in step with you. The safest place to be is in the shadow of your steps, is to follow you through your life, is to live the resurrected life. And so, God, I pray that as we as our hearts in this room online, as we begin to try to decipher how does this apply to me, what does that mean to me, God, I pray that you would be so clear to each and every one of us, that when you invite us to come and catch the life that you are breathing all around us, God, that we would know that we would do so in step with you, that we would do so in following you, that you have unexpectedly called us into life. Father, may we experience that life in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.